because China has the ability to destroy your command control communications and targeting. And so what Japan rose up to, and especially under the leadership of uh, Shinzo Abe, that if Japan does not build its own defense capability, does not have its own satellite constellations capability, uh, is not building up its own cyberspace capability, and Japan is now also, what is interesting to me, is talking about building a defense mechanism to even intercept a hypersonic glide vehicle, which China tested in 2021. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back. Did you know that this month, and I am talking about April, we may have a moon landing? If you didn't, you're forgiven, as Japan is often and really too often overlooked as a space nation of excellence. In fact, immediately after World War II, Japan was banned from developing aeronautics technology. That ban was lifted with the 1951 San Francisco Peace Treaty, which was followed by the end of the U.S. occupation in 1952. Now, roughly three years later, Japan launched its first rocket, the Pencil Rocket. In 1970, Japan launched the Osumi, its first satellite. Since then, it has been regularly launching satellites and experimental spacecraft. And this month, Japan may notch another first for itself, a moon landing. But what's really different here is the fact that this landing is being attempted by a space company, not the Japanese Space Agency. The Tokyo-based company is called iSpace, and it's licensed to carry out lunar resource extraction for ice and minerals. It even has a $5,000 contract with NASA for that purpose. But here's the thing. Space technology, by its nature, is almost always dual use. So that got me interested in understanding just where is Japan's thinking on space and defense, especially since it announced that it intended to take a more proactive approach to defending its more than 6,800 islands from what it believes are China's and Russia's expansionist ambitions. And Japan is putting its money where its mouth is. It's increased its annual defense spending for 2023 by 27% to roughly $50 billion. And this island nation has made no secret that it intends to continue these hefty increases over the next five years. Japan's defense space budget is also expected to double over that period. So between the moon landing and the defense budget, there's a lot to unpack here. And to do that, I spoke with Namrata Goswami. Here's our conversation. Hi, Namrata. It's great to have you back and to talk about a moon landing, no less. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be back as well. Namrata, you know how we roll. For the podcast, newer listeners, take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Namrata Goswami, and I am a faculty associate with the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University where I teach space policy and space futures. And uh, I'm also the co-author of the book called Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space with Peter Garretson. 
So let's talk about the fun stuff first. A moon landing and iSpace. That's a Japanese company out of Tokyo with offices in Denver, Colorado, and Luxembourg. And it would seem pretty fair to say that it would like to open the first licensed cislunar shipping office on the moon. Nami, what's the latest? So uh, I like the way you framed it, the first licensed shipping service in cislunar space. And that's exactly what iSpace uh, is hoping for, that they will establish the first uh, business case for resource extraction on the moon. So the latest update is that iSpace that launched uh, on December 11th of last year on a Falcon 9 rocket has entered the lunar orbit successfully. So that's a really big deal because that's something that they were concerned about. In fact, in an update that Rio Ukuji gave, who is the chief technology officer of iSpace, they had a few anomalies just before that. The spacecraft was uh, feeling a bit more temperature and that uh, some of the onboard computer, they had to reboot, but they successfully uh, uh, solve that particular anomaly and have entered lunar orbit. So the next step for iSpace is really the big deal that I think uh, your audience would appreciate, and which is that they will attempt the first commercial lunar landing uh, in an area called the Atlas Crater, which is located uh, at the Mare Frigaris uh, on the near side of the moon. So uh, if that succeeds, that would actually establish an amazing capability, not just for iSpace, but for Japan uh, in general. So that's the update. So we'll have to wait now to see uh, end of April if they succeed. So if iSpace sticks the landing, it will be a serious achievement as only government space programs from the US and Russia and China have actually succeeded in landing on the moon. Israel's Beersheet, which was a privately funded endeavor and the Indian Space Agency's uh, Chandrayaan-2 Vikram lander, you know, they both crashed on impact. But there are so many firsts about this mission. You know, what stands out to you, Namrata? Uh, yeah, thank you, Laura, for that question. So there are a couple of things that stands out to me. First is that this is going to be the first commercially funded lander that is going to land for the first time. And what is even more important is that iSpace is wanting to use this particular mission, which is called the Hakuta RM1 mission, to prove that the moon is going to be open for business. So basically a commercial case uh, they have a pre-agreed contract with NASA to sell the resources that they would extract in missions that are coming in 2024. And so that's the first that comes to my mind. The second important first that comes to mind is that this particular M1 mission is carrying a rover for the United Arab Emirates, so which is going to be a first from an Arab nation. So the rover that iSpace is carrying for the UAE is called a Rashid 1 rover. And that particular rover will study the plasma on the lunar surface and conduct experiments to understand more about lunar dust. So that's the second important first that comes to mind when I think about the iSpace mission. And Namrata, did you know that the Japanese rover, the one JAXA is sending... It's made by a Japanese toy company. No, I did not, Laura. Tell us more about it. Well, the Sora Q was designed and manufactured by Takara Tommy. They're the Japanese toy company that brought the world the Transformers. More than meets the eye, the Transformers. 
toy company designed Japan's space agencies, that's JAXA, the JAXA Lunar Excursion Vehicle. It's called the Sora-Q. Have you seen the images? No, I have not, Laura. It's so cute. It's a transformable lunar robot. It's eight centimeters in diameter. It's a sphere. It weighs about a quarter of a kilogram, so it fits really nice and cutely into your hand. And it will unpack itself and form into a cylinder with one axle and two hemispherical wheels. It's carrying cameras for surface observations. I guess the perspective will be that of a Mickey Mouse looking for cheese, but it's still really, really cool. Sounds fantastic. I have to look it up. So now with the fun stuff out of the way, you and I know that space and the technologies developed to operate in that domain are essentially dual use. That means they can be used for civilian and military purposes. And this is a defense-focused podcast. What does the iSpace mission mean to Japan's defense? The Japanese Ministry of Defense is spending a huge percentage of its defense budget on space systems. Namrata? Sure, absolutely. So what is very important about this particular mission is that under the 2008 basic space law that Japan put out, they very clearly categorized the development of space. So they change words, which is again, very interesting to me. So instead of using words like space exploration, which is what NASA and the Indian Space Research Organization uses, uh, the Japanese government talked about this concept of space development and use, and they repeated it, saying that that's what their focus is. And so within that particular context, they pointed out that they're going to help develop the commercial space industry, including communications, uh, precision navigation, timing, space domain awareness capability, and that that particular commercialization of space will be utilized for national defense purposes. So the most symbolic impact that the iSpace mission has is that it showcases the Japanese uh, public itself, that here is a Japanese commercial company that is able to send a lunar orbiter and a lander and enter lunar orbit. And if they land successfully, a very important autonomous robotic mission and extract resources. So what that means is that Japan now will have the capability for going beyond just low Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit to cislunar space, that that's the first direct impact I see from the iSpace mission. And then what is even more important to understand is that under the current uh, 2022 national security strategy, Japan has insisted and affirmed the critical importance of building space domain awareness, uh, communication satellites, and the entire public partnership framework to augment or build and strengthen their national defense, which continues from the 2018 uh, national uh, guidelines that they put out that very clearly categorize space as a domain, as a multi-domain, uh, basically uh, enabler of joint operations. So I think the iSpace mission, the success of it, if it lands, the ability to do something for the first time will build up Japan's uh, private space industry even further. Japan is really 
building up its, well, its version of its space forces. I believe they're called the air and space forces um, together. And they've got, you know, space wings essentially out there working on electronic warfare. Uh, they're looking at how to harden their satellites, make them more survivable. You know, what is it that they're preparing for? Are they preparing to deter? Are they preparing to target? You know, what is their purpose? Sure. So uh, there has been a change in Japan's strategic thinking uh, since about 2013, uh, where uh, they actually believe that space plays a very critical role in space uh, situational awareness. And then, as I said before, since 2018, they talked about this concept of multi-domain defense force. So when you look into their strategic if I may use the word rationalization of why they are starting to talk about this fusion capability that includes space, cyberspace, and electromagnetic spectrum, they Japan, what Japan is preparing for is an inevitability of uh, invasion of the homeland or an attack on the homeland. So under the 1956 constitution, Japan basically had the strategic uh, posture of using force only as a last resort, right? But today, since 2013, and continuing with the 2018 National Defense Program guideline, the 2022 National Security Strategy that reaffirmed that guideline, Japan argues that they are going to invest in counter-strike capability, which includes space as well. And which means that they have a very offensive, tactical, operational posture for defending the homeland. So that's what they're preparing for. They're preparing to ensure that any invasion of Japan, any Russia-like situation that has happened with Ukraine is not going to repeat with Japan. And the biggest concern, of course, is the development of Chinese uh, military capabilities that also includes Chinese space capabilities. So they're very clear in what their concern is. And for... Those of us here who don't really follow the developments in that part of the world uh, very closely, you know, what do you think that's lit the fire under them to make them think about, you know, switching? Because this is a big, you know, constructual sort of, you know, switch in terms of their diction, in terms of how they view their place in the uh, Far East and in the Pacific. What is it that they have been experiencing that has really prompted them to make this pretty radical change in their outlook and how they defend their homeland? Yeah, so I think it started around 2007. So uh, what happened was that in 2007, uh, China tested an anti-satellite weapon that showcased not just to the United States, but also to a country like Japan that depends on space support to an extent, that any operation that depends on such support, for example, air, land, sea, is going to be impacted because China has the ability to destroy your command control communications and targeting. And so what Japan rose up to, and especially under the leadership of uh, Shinzo Abe, that if Japan does not build its own defense capability, does not have its own satellite constellations capability, uh, is not building up its own cyberspace capability. And Japan is now also, what is interesting to me, is talking about building 
a defense mechanism to even intercept a hypersonic glide vehicle, which China tested in 2021. So the tipping point was that particular, in my mind, the anti-satellite weapon test. I think the further tipping point was once President Xi Jinping came to power, he made it very clear in his speech in Kazakhstan called the China Dream, and then his speeches later in terms of how China views this space in East Asia. So China argues that all the islands that they dispute with Japan are theirs. China had been building up its naval and coast guard capability, including its support through satellites. And Japan can see that happen in its neighborhood and is rightly concerned. Just to break in, Japan being an island nation, I mean, they just observed China circling around Taiwan um, in a mock blockade. That has to be kind of a wake up for anyone who may have doubted that, you know, China means business, at least in the seas near their coastline. Yes. And in fact, uh, that's a great point to make because not just the mock exercises, right? Even China uh, launching, you know, fighter jets that is breaking Taiwanese airspace. And then the other tipping point is that China, for example, I think uh, introduce an air defense identification zone over the East China Sea, which told you that they see that as their territory. So these are all escalatory moves. And this is what Japan is truly concerned about, that if a scenario occurs that China takes over Taiwan in the next, say, five years, that's going to be a strategic vulnerability for Japan because it's closer from Taiwan to get to Japan. And China, as you said, can then improve their own air, sea, land, cyber, and space support to encircle Japan. And Japan's concern has always been that because of technology, right? And so the impact, what is interesting as a consequence of that is that we see Taiwan now talking about building up their own space capability. So last year, Taiwan changed the name of its uh, space agency, uh, which was called the National Space Science Program to the Taiwan Space Agency. And the idea behind that, according to President Shai, is that this truly reorganizes the space agency to build capacity, especially communications infrastructure, vis-a-vis -vis the concern that China can destroy support systems that countries like Japan or Taiwan depends upon, right? And so in a speech that she gave in the rebandering ceremony in 2022, she pointed out that there are two reasons why Taiwan is investing in its space capabilities uh, for the next uh, five, 10 years, which is that Taiwan wants to open itself up for international business opportunities. And secondly, because of the concern of China's insistence that Taiwan is part of the Chinese mainland, the Taiwanese national security desire is to build a resilient space structure that can support Taiwan in a defense posture if that ever occurs. So this is again a very interesting shift and these decisions were taken as per the Taiwan Space Activities Act uh, and it was based on a cabinet level National Science Technology Council. And I'll finally end by saying that uh, by rebranding their National Space Program Office, they actually uh, insisted on the word Taiwan Space Agency to make sure that this international recognition of Taiwan as a space middle power is going to be recognized. And uh, they are also, like Japan, basically emphasizing on their private space sector to play a role as well. And so Foxconn is also building a satellite that is going to be a part of a 
low Earth orbit constellation, uh, which, which uh, interestingly, Japan also is talking about when it talks about the contribution of space to their national security and defense. Japan is saying that they will encourage their private space sector to build satellite constellations. And the basic uh, inspiration that both countries have got is watching the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So uh, Taiwanese uh, digital minister, Ms. Tang, pointed out that uh, the, when she observed how Starlink played such a critical role in how the Ukrainian military was able to deter China, Russian aggression, was extremely eye-opening even for her. And then she realized that if she does not build Taiwan's own space private sector, Taiwan might suffer as a result. And Japan seems to be very much inspired by that as well. So very interesting consequences in terms of national security development. And if you take just a, a look at a map, everybody, you know, this is sort of a chain of uh, democracies. You know, if you start from the Philippines, from the Philippines, you get to Taiwan, from Taiwan, you get to Japan, and then north and to the west of Japan, you have South Korea. You know, these are all nations, states, islands that are democracies that are, you know, facing off against two communist authoritarian regimes, and they are looking at space, at least Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. You know, these are three very different areas, nation states, peoples, different cultures, uh, different creative and technological strengths that bring a lot to the table. So I kind of think this actually can't make China all that pleased. This is where I think China is starting to notice as well, right? So uh, one, China is of course observing how much Japan's strategic posture has changed. Uh, and with the publication of the 2022 National Security Strategy, where Japan is talking about counter-strike capability, which is a very offensive operational capability in a particular, you know, constitutional focus that talks about a defensive posture. So China has noticed that. But what is interesting is that the Chinese government is arguing for a delegitimization of this democratic arc, right? So one way it's delegitimizing it is by publishing opinion pieces and making speeches about the quadrilateral security dialogue that Japan uh, actually inspired. Shinzo Abe came up with the idea, which includes Australia, India, the United States, and Japan, key spacefaring nations, and one that is an emerging nation, Australia. And so uh, what China has done is really interesting. So vis-a-vis -vis this particular developments that we talk about in uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia to an extent, China has upscaled its relationship with Russia. You see that in the visit of President Xi Jinping last week to meet Putin, which was, of course, months in the making, and positioning himself as supporting what Putin is doing in terms of developing their economy vis-a-vis -vis China, never mentioning Ukraine, but talking about how China can play a role in terms of dialogue. So that's how China is responding to this entire arcs of democracy that is creating a counter and with Japan becoming pretty assertive in terms of building its capability vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. I think this will only compete in, at a higher level and you will see that democratic nations will come together even more. You see that with Japanese prime minister visiting uh, Ukraine exactly at the same time when President Xi Jinping was in Russia. So you already see that kind of posturing. 
I can't hold myself back from sharing this, but also at the same time that those two visits were occurring, Kazakhstan did impound equipment associated with Russia's Baikonur uh, spaceport, which is really the only place where Russia can launch things to space at present, which that's actually called into question because I'm not even sure if they have access to their stuff. Um, anyway, we have run out of time. Namrata, thank you so much. Thank you, Laura, for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.